Hi, I'm Patrick Hollick, and you're listening to a new episode of The Love Show. Today's guest I'm excited to have on is Brian Ling. For a lot of people that don't know the name, uh, Brian is an old friend of mine that kind of grew up in the Los Angeles community, always had a strong focus in music, and has managed and worked with such bands as everyone from Julian Casablancas to Alex Ebers of Ed Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Crash, a lot of the artists that are also freestanding artists within Edward Sharp. He started a successful community at a place people dubbed No Name, but that really wasn't the name of it. It was a happening that I would go to all the time on Fairfax and enjoy food and catch up with friends. I can't say enough good things about Brian and how impressed I am with how he's always been doing a non-business approach. Brian's more of a friend that kind of helps you get to the best place in yourself and he's done it for so many. I guess he's chose musicians to do it with, but he's done it for me in my work. He's done it for a lot of my friends. He's just kind of a guy with very good ideas. He listens more than talks and he's able to extract something within a person and kind of expand upon it, which ends up starting cultural moments. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about that. Here's our episode with Brian Ling. Was it the end of an era the other night or a false alarm? It's the end of an era. <laughs> that was the last night of, it's called No Name, correct? It, people started calling it No Name. Yeah. It didn't, I didn't give it a name. Someone told me when I was trying to come up with the name for that place that if you don't name it, it'll force people to describe it uh, rather than brand it. And I like that. And that's, so then eventually... People started calling it No Name. I remember know. Community because there was a mosaic that said Community, so they tried that, right? <laughs> well, I put the mosaic in there that say I wanted it to say Community because I wanted to remind people that you are part of a special community when you walk through those doors. Mm-hmm. So that's why I put it there. But it wasn't because I wanted to call it Community, even though I've called many other things Community or community music or new community management. I remember I used to just say, it's got no name. And then somebody was like, no name. And how did that get going? Do you know? Or it just happened? It just started. It just seemed to be the easiest way to identify it, I think. Was yeah. People calling it no name. When you opened it, what was your idea with it? You had, uh, I remember seeing it as a construction site for a long time. Yeah. And then I think the first night was us having pizza upstairs with like... <laughs> eight people or something or just the the uh, soft openings which weren't even soft openings right yeah um try i mean it evolved the the concept definitely evolved a little bit over the years or i mean over the year and a half as we were building it but the what remained kind of like um true to what we first were trying to do is that it was a showcase space for musicians and artists to be able to perform and a restaurant bar that felt like some sort of a, an escape from, um, 
or a, a sanctuary from kind of everywhere else that had seemed to become so um, a part of a new scene that mm-hmm. I wasn't super super familiar or into gr- while you know growing up here. I'm 40 years old, and I caught like the tail end of what I think was the golden age of um, going out and parties, and you know where the vibe mattered more than how much money a place was going to make in one night. Right. I agree with you on that era. Yeah. What were you catching at the tail? What were the ones that you thought were interesting? I mean, Dublin's was like towards the end, which I, of that, you know, I got to, in the beginning of me going out was like opium den. You know, I remember sneaking into opium den Mm -hmm. and thinking that I was like in the coolest place ever. And that was Brent Bolthouse. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Papa Willie, or were you and too Sarah. young for that? I don't know, Papa Willie. Papa Willie was when Drew Barrymore was the uh, the cashier in a like pre gun crazy <laughs> when she was in getting her career. Like she wasn't a child and she wasn't an adult, so she was working with Brent. Got it. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I was after that. I yeah. think I'm uh, fifty, so I got you by ten. Yeah. So, um, but I, you know, I I feel like. Um, even in the beginning of like Garden of Eden, um, uh, Dragonfly, like there was just fun parties that were mm-hmm. happening all over the place and kind of little little pop-ups that would come and go. But I, I was so into it that I started throwing those parties and being working with those people and having my own nights. And I actually was a part of... Um, the first, uh, when, when coconut teaser became shelter, okay. we did Friday nights, me and, um, this guy, Joe Var Andrews and Joe Yarbrough. Um, and did I go to those? Did I ever come to that? Yeah. 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 And we had in the opening of our first night of shelter, we had, uh, Ronson DJ mm-hmm. and, we kind of started off and then there was of course the Saturday nights, which was a whole other thing, which was Chuck and Vinny and all those guys and Leo's, you probably hung more at that party. Than, Not than necessarily. I liked to like, I always liked what you were doing. You know, I was at the point where I think when you were getting strong that I was so ready for it. Cause you were doing this non Hollywood. Um, yeah. It was more like you reminded me of the Ledoux and the old school, which before your time there was flaming Colossus was by far number one. Because Flaming would have in one room Charday and the Gypsy Kings and the other room NWA. And it was a mess. And it was really wonderful. Like each floor was a culture. Well, that's funny <laughs> that you say that because the, my first experience promoting nightclubs was I was hired by um, Adrian Miller and Jordan Bucky. And wow. they had this night called Acapulco Gold, which was at the Key Club. And there would be one hip hop act and one uh rock act mm-hmm. you know but it would be like Eminem and Linkin Park and yeah. dilated peoples and all these all these incredible um artists and rappers and musicians that were a part of this night that didn't quite make sense it was definitely a clash in in crowds and I went to three different high schools in LA so and I didn't wasn't going to college so I was able to assemble uh, a lot of kids. Why uh, all the schools? Were you uh, I was a good football. or bad student? No, I was, I was a pretty good student, but I, I had this, these aspirations of playing football 
and continuing to play football and you grow up and you're just playing football, you think that that's what you're going to do at least through college. Mm-hmm. So I get, kept getting told to go to different schools to play football and I didn't get along with the coach here. And then, and then my Pop Warner coach had assembled my team that I grew up playing football with, all these inner city kids, mm-hmm. to go to Burbank High, which is the most random thing of all time. My dad set up an apartment there so I could go there. And we started playing. We put Burbank High on the map for a little bit to the point where people were starting to pay attention. Like, how did this happen? Right. And then school started and all these kids who were a part of like, I don't know, just different being brought up a little bit different. I, I, before Burbank High, I had gone to public, I mean, a private school my entire life. Okay. And then, so it's going to public school was really easy for me. I went through the similar, I went through, but mine was shocking. Yeah. It was shocking to go from, I was special ed, and then I was implemented back into society. Got it. <laughs> That's a whole thing. Yeah. So. Mine, mine was just, um, you know, a lot of these kids couldn't, didn't care about school, didn't like think of it, and it was a little bit more difficult. It just kind of things started to take a turn for me and my perception of life and started smoking a little weed, learned how to surf a little bit, realized that the world is way bigger than the yeah. football field. Yeah. And I, I always equated football with college. And so now I wasn't going to play football any longer. I didn't want to, so I didn't want to go to college. And so I just started working and I worked for a record label, this record label called Trauma Records. Julie, actually, my sister got me the job there because she was the uh, president of the label's nanny. And, wow. And so during the day I was running around, I was a runner, which they used to have those back in the day. They don't anymore because it's all services. So I was a runner. I'd go around, I would drop shit off. And then at night I would be promoting a concert or mm-hmm. a, some sort of party or whatever else. And I remember the party that actually I was able to kind of parlay into having my own night was I did the after party somehow uh, at this place called The Fix that used to be right across the street from the Palladium. And I did the after party of the Massive Attack show and Perry Farrell was the DJ. Wow. And it was the coolest party. Was- Tell me, what was that label called that you used to run for? Trauma. Trauma. And who was an artist that-, that- Bush and No Doubt. Bush and No Doubt. So that was massive. Yeah. They were, they were big. They were- uh, it was a big deal at the time because they were a subsidiary of Interscope, but they were basically an independent label that had the number one and number two records in the world. No so pressure. There was a lot of, a lot of, I saw kind of the rise and the fall of, of, you know, what, what arguably was probably the last golden age of the music business before now there's a whole other resurgence that's happening streaming, starting to become a little bit more profitable, but mm-hmm. back then was a whole different thing. Yeah. Pre-internet Napster, all that stuff. Right. I got to watch that show from the music video side of things where there was a hundred video commissioners that would pick me as director down to four. Right. So we knew shit was changing. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole, in the budgets for videos and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, The Fix was this part, this place that then became the Fabulous Cafe, which is still there. But that used to be this really dark kind of bar. And it had an upstairs. 
And this guy, Fez, do you remember Fez? I remember the name, but I don't have a face with it. But there's not very many Fezes in the world. Fez is this, he's a black dude Mm -hmm. who Anthony Kiedis deemed Fez because he used to wear this Fez hat all the time. And Fez would go around and he'd be the guy who like, before there was those gifting suites. Right. He was like a mobile gifting suite. He would like walk around and be like, he did this thing. I'll tell you right now, he had a, a talent. And if he's listening to this, it's said in the most like loving way possible. But um, he had a talent where, and I'm going to call it a talent, where he would introduce two people he didn't know that didn't know each other <laughs> to each other. And therefore, now he knew both of them. I already like where this is going. So he, he would put together, he would go up to someone and be like, I witnessed the one of the funniest ones, which was, I, I'm still close, but back in the day, I used to go out all the time with Nick Hexum from 311. Okay. And we would be out and he walked up and he'd be like, Nick, James Woods wants to meet you. And Nick would turn around and be like, oh, really? And then <laughs> Fez would go up to James Wood and be like, hey, this is Nick from 311. And it would, and James Woods didn't want to meet Nick from no 311. at that point. And, and they were like, you know, Sometimes the the conversation would be would like get going and be okay, but most of the time it was like, why are we here? Why did you introduce? It? You know, it was like yeah. that kind of thing. The confusion would come at one point or another. It was so funny, but, but then it was but too he was late. A master, right? Yeah, he was a master. Of, then he would he would be like kind of the lubricant to finesse the conversation in a certain way, and then the next thing you know, you had like a brand new pair of headphones. Wow. <laughs> Some people are good at opening it up. I never have been. I'm like peripheral waiting for the entry. Yeah. But some of my friends could go into like any place in the world and just set it off. And right. I'm never that guy, you know? Yeah. I enjoy the Me art. Neither. <laughs> I'm like leaning back, waiting for it to not be noticed and fade yeah. out quickly. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm, I'm way more uh, behind you're very, the very. You're the extreme version of me, I think. Well, I, I guess the difference is that I've, inserted myself into a lot or I've tried to create a lot of things and so inherently and especially nowadays we're we're in this culture of like me 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 check me out look at me yeah I have an adverse reaction to that feeling but part of what I do needs some of that in order to I don't know I mean I sometimes um I'm I'm conflicted a little bit because you know, I work with a lot of artists and, and I feel like we've gotten to a place with social media where I'm confused if, if I post something on my Instagram, that's just like a photo of a new record coming out or a song or whatever else, do people look at that and think that they know it already Mm -hmm. by just looking at it and Mm -hmm. don't need to listen to it? Because I think that that happens. There is a little bit of that. And I think that it's almost like, in in one respect, my job as a manager is to go out and, and promote and to line up marketing ideas and people and kind of like build the the momentum. But social media, I think, is is a pitfall in a lot of ways I believe, of that yeah. stuff. Because I think that people like associate, oh, I've heard of that or I know that. So I, or I heard the last album, so I know what this album is. And I think that that's, to me... It's been my only reason for keeping social media. That's been my excuse to people when I'm like, oh no, I still have Instagram and Facebook because, um, you know, I need to promote the art. But I feel like it might be working 
in reverse. It's the first time I said that out loud, but it's something I certainly no, think, I think about. think I think I have the same dilemma where I have a, a docu-series that we're putting together that no one understands called Analogs TV. And what Analogs was, was sharing edits that's going to later become a fully formed documentary. On Instagram, I post cut downs so you don't have to be watching a three-minute, four-minute film to lead you to the three to four-minute film. But everyone goes, I already saw that. Yeah. They saw the cut down. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that's where we are. And also, I think one of the other things that I see that may be similar is I put up stuff and, uh, you know, I, I promote the works that I'm proud of or I'm doing, but people, I think, want to see me right now wearing my sweatpants talking to you and what I'm going to make for breakfast. So I don't think we're part of that engagement. Right. Nor do we want to be, I think it's like an older school where I want the work to speak. I don't need to tell you what kind of toilet paper I'm buying at, yeah. at Ralph's and stuff like that. But right. this is where this disclosure thing, I talked to, to Jim Carrey about it and he was like, I built my career to be 50 feet high and mysterious, like a, you know, romantically a Bogart or something. I didn't really want to do a cooking show to promote the new movie. Right. You know, and that's this curmudgeon. <laughs> no, but it's, it's true. I mean, you get, you get to the, like, what actually cuts through? What really matters? What's really with with regards to promotion yeah. and marketing? Because you I think remind that, me, and I might be wrong. Chris Clancy and you probably get along. That's what Shane said. I've never met him. I met him briefly um, because you both I, have. A I culture. really respect him. You have a culture. Sure. You have an environment, and you have uh, principles that you've stick stuck to since I've known you, both of you. There's just, there's a certain degree and I think it works, you know? Well, so I would you. ask you what the sauce is, even though social doesn't seem, maybe you're more community and in-person and physical event versus some cyber hype piece. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely believe in principles mm -hmm. and I, and I think the thing that maybe separates my philosophy from a lot of others that do what I do is that I don't really put um, the bottom line financially as like the main motivator to yeah. Yeah. what we're doing. I think that a lot of times that the business can get in the way of a great idea coming together. Uh -huh. And there have been people that I've been able to learn from and mentors that have come in and out of my life that have shown me ways of doing things or to kind of keep my compass focused in the right direction. And, you know, we, I think capitalism also has become completely perverted in this country. And especially when it comes to art and, yes. and co the commerce of art. And it's hard sometimes to be a part of um, feeling like you're uh, selling something that's supposed to be more discoverable and yeah. and I'm about experiences uh, and I'm also about relationships. So I approach every way that every kind of business idea or opportunity as how are we all winning together? Not how do I leverage the most for myself in order to get, you know, have someone say one day he made the better deal, you know? Yeah. And it, it's tough because with artists, like you have to be there. There is some cutthroatness that has to go down on behalf of your artists, and that's I think where lawyers come in more than someone like me, at least in this organization. And and uh, I work with people who are kind of like minded, but money is just something that we can't get 
around. We ha- we need it. There's an investment banker entrance in entertainment, at least from my film side of things. It used to be like Lou Washerman, and if you didn't work with him, you're done. Now it's like 70 people in New York City from Goldman Sachs going, what's this spike? And they're like, that's Hunger Games. And they go, do more of that. And then they fly back. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. But that's, that's what <laughs> Is it's- Is that happening to music in a sense yeah, too? Yeah. And that's been happening to music and to- Art. I mean, it's. It feels like. I don't know. I don't believe that all things should be equated to how much money they make, mm-hmm. you know, or how yeah. how profitable they are for those people that are sitting up in the big buildings behind a desk who don't have a creative bone in their body. Nor do but, they listen to any of this stuff. You yeah, know. they don't care. It's just all about kind of numbers, and I just don't operate in that. When and also within the music business, I've said this many times, but management is the only non numbers game. Um, everything else is a numbers game, I think. Mm-hmm. Management is more personal. Mm-hmm. If there's five clients that we're working with and four of them are doing well, then the one that's not is where that's like the real, like where I have to put my energy and I have to also think, like, can I? Am I holding this person back? Mm-hmm. Would they be better with someone else? Mm-hmm. You've come to that decision with an artist or two? Yeah. Can you say who it is? Or you know, I think like- that I worked with this artist, James Vincent McMorrow, mm-hmm. and I think that we did the what we were supposed to do during the time that we were supposed to do it. I, I don't have any... Um, I don't... There's no hard feelings. Sure. Julian Casablancas, same thing. And right. the voids. Um, is the voids one of his sub projects? That's that's he has so much going on. I can't figure it out. Well, he's he has like this Shia project LaBeouf with a microphone. I don't know where we're at, <laughs> but he, but he's doing the voids has become as much a focus in his life as anything else, I think. And, and I'm glad to see that as someone who worked with them for a little bit. Is it's that a, the band with 70 people in it or no? No, it's, but it's a super group. I think okay. that has like, uh, Jeff Kite and Beardo and Jacob Bertavici, like it's really good musicians. Yeah, and they're really they're really cool, and I think that they're different from the Strokes, and so that's a hard thing for Julian and his fans to kind of sometimes, um, at least when they were first coming out, to like have it not be thought of as a side project, mm-hmm. but. In that case, it was a situation where I didn't know what I could do for it. Mm-hmm. anymore and it, and I almost I, I basically wanted to become I wanted to go back to being a fan of mm-hmm. what they're doing and yeah. a friend and an ally if they ever need it and um, and we both like both of those situations were mutual like high fives of you know we this was a good run together and that that happens a lot and yeah. I to me I don't have any contracts with any of my artists okay so I'm never going to waste time over a piece of paper and the unwinding and the sunset clauses. And the, if we can't have a discussion about what's fair when we're separating, then I'll probably in most cases just walk away because life's too short. And I'm Do not people make the right decisions when you're this open with them. Do they tend to lean towards the correct like gesture when there is money involved? Or do they tend for the to most take part, it for granted that you're, you know, open door? For the most part, there's definitely been... Short view and long view people. Yeah. I mean, 
shouldn't really get into it, but there's, no. there's definitely been times where I've left myself exposed mm-hmm. and have been, you know, fucked over because of that mm-hmm. and have had to deal with it in the moment. And it's like a little bit of a heartache for me because management is so personal, but you, I come to a realization of like, I'd rather just wash my hands of it than try to involve, you Add know, more the core. Resistance. Yeah. 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 At the end of the day, it's like, what do you, what are you really squabbling over? Like my, my time is the most important thing to me. Let me take you back a little bit to supergroups because I never understood how Ebers and Ed Sharp comes about. I had met Alex when I think he was with, I want to say it's Aaron Bray and he had like a hip hop group. Yeah. And then I saw him begin to do these demonstrations, which was I'm a robot. And I thought that was a fun happening in Los Angeles. It was another cultural moment that was fun and new to me because I was getting to be older and already like probably retired nightlife. But he brought me back into it. And then I didn't see him for a long time other than just randomly walking down a beach. And then cut to my ears heard that he was in Laurel Canyon and he was doing something crazy and that you were heavily involved. So how does that story go correctly? Wow. Um <laughs> Well, I, this is how I remember it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if Alex was on here, he might. Remember um, a different one. Yeah. <laughs> or at least if he's on here, don't play him the way that I remember it first and like <laughs> let him tell it in his own way. We're not and doing see. gotcha journalism. We're yeah. not going to be on Bravo anytime soon. Okay. <laughs> um, I I was a fan of I'm a Robots. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Aaron Me as Br- well. Aaron Bray, I don't know how you know Aaron Bray. Kevin Bray gave me my start in music video when I was 16 years old. Amazing. Kevin said, what do you want to do? Do you want to art direct Gangstar video? It's a Malcolm X concept. I had a one-week ticket to New York City, met Kevin Bray, never came back. Kevin changed my life. Kevin's like, this is my friend, Jean-Michel. This is New York City. This is Indochine. And I do three videos a week. And I'm like, I'm like, who the fuck are you? And it was a girlfriend of mine that said, you should meet Kevin Bray. And we became friends for life. Aaron's his cousin. And I went to <laughs> private school, fourth grade with Aaron Bray. Wow. Fourth and fifth. And I believe he split in the sixth grade. But I've known him since then. And then he went to Oakwood with Alex, and that's how they became friends. I didn't know any of that, yeah. I'll tell you how Edward Sharp started. Yes. So I I was a fan of I'm a Robots, and I originally met them through their original first manager, Mike Barsman, who I kind of knew in high school a little bit. 
and became friends with them. And I was kind of starting out in the music business. So I, I was like, I was kind of like a hustler. Like I was doing all sorts of different things. So I'd bring opportunities. You guys want to play as a part of the opening for the sounds at the Palladium? Do you want to do this? There's a private party here, blah, blah, blah. You were connecting like a connector out there. Yeah. And I was just like, I was super into that scene at that time. The I'm a robot, you know, LA shows were great. Were it was yeah. a cultural moment. If you were if you were at those shows that you you know what I'm talking about. I followed every one of them. And so some time had passed. I had gone to New York. I was living in New York. I was working for a digital music company. It was kind of my first real big boy job in the music industry. I mean, I had some I had grown from being a runner at Trauma Records to the president's assistant. And I A&R'd Shaq's, uh, Shaquille O'Neal's last album that never came out. And wow. that, was, that was a whole thing. But <laughs> but I was living in New York. I was visiting back home for a little bit. I went to Alcove that was- um, I remember that. On uh, Hillhurst or whatever. I ran into Alex there. And he, um, I was like, what are you up to? And he's like, oh man, I've, I've been in an apartment for the last six months working on new music. I really like haven't left the apartment He goes, I haven't played it for anyone. Do you want to go and listen to it? And I was like, sure. So we left and we went to this apartment that was right above the second floor, like right near the Vista theater. What's that? Hollywood proper? Oh, Las Feliz. Yeah. Uh And, um, walked in and listened to the first seven demos that he had made. And I was like, this is incredible. And were the monsters on there or not yet? Like the big songs or not yet? There was like home, but it had like whistling and not whistling. It had like, like almost a kazoo sound of like, you know, it wasn't like, um, it was shaped out, but not filled in. Yeah. But some of these other songs were like fully, sounded really fresh the way that they were. I remember Desert Song, 40 Day Dream. And he asked me if I could help him put them out. He wanted to just release them like this. Mm-hmm. And over the course of like a few weeks of talking about it, we decided that it would be better to like try and record them properly. Mm-hmm. And I told him that I knew these two guys, Aaron and Nico, who were musicians, but they were also producers and they were working on this record for this band called the deadly syndrome. Okay. And they had a house studio up off the top of Mulholland and we drove up and I introduced him to Aaron and Nico. He kind of knew who Nico was cause Nico was kind of like flopping around the scene as well, but they didn't really know each other right. and they vibed and that started the process I was going back and forth from LA to New York and like it seemed like every week a new person was being added into the mix of recording and and it was interesting because I didn't know what my relationship with the band was at that time if I was the manager if I was Alex's manager are these are these people yeah hired or are they part of the band right do we really need a band that has 10 people in it should you guys maybe manage yourselves yeah. There was so much kind of just not a lot of certainty. And I was, I was just really, I didn't have any big clients or didn't know really what I was doing that much in the music business. And so someone would have a hard time with a four, 
four banger. I mean, that's crazy. Right. You, and I, I, you got I, like a Manson camp up in the hills. And I feel like <laughs> if I knew more, if I knew what I knew now about the music business, sure. I wouldn't have been so gung ho into trying to work with this thing, Yeah, you know, but it was a mixture of like, my me being green, the hustle element that I've that I had in me of tr- of working really hard to try and put things together, and and then really like the spirit that started to take on where it really felt like something different was happening, a scene was forming, and you know you can be working in the music business for your whole life and not be a part of being at the forefront of an actual scene taking Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the goods right there. Like the feeling of the feeling of something culture cultivating and organizing around art uh, that, that you're a part of. Did you notice when it's happening or is this just all happening too much? Because you have some of the most talented single-handedly, like Nico's his own thing. The original kind of crew was Stuart uh, playing trumpet, Christian Letts playing guitar, Nico playing guitar. This guy, Aaron Older, was a part of it in the beginning. He was the original bass player. Aaron Embry was the original piano player. What's Crash's involvement? Is he later? Crash was in The Deadly Syndrome. Okay. so. So full circle is like the deadly syndrome put out a couple records. They're, they're some of the most, they're some of the most like criminally unheard records that exist. If I'll have to you, look. Cause I loved when you did the showcase of crash and hammer. I liked every song on that record. It was crash's own album is amazing. And new music that he's working on is great. But if you Let's get go a back chance, to the, go to the deadly syndrome records, look. but crash was a part of that. So crash eventually ended up becoming like, um, a part of the band and kind of a utility player, but also because his voice is so good, Mm. he would do these background kind of uh, little harmonies and adding texture and all this stuff because, you know, it was a lot like the way that Alex approaches shows and not having a set list and kind of flying and feeling the energy like that sometimes lends itself to being very difficult on your voice. And so it was always good to have uh, crash around when crashes started to come into the mix. He's more of an organized person, like no, no. Well, actually, that's not true. Yeah, he. I would say he he's pretty good at that, but he's more of just like this all around utility. Like he could do a lot of things. And then there was Nora, who's in the band, um, accordion player. I actually just had coffee with her this morning. And then there ended up being like all sorts of people that would come in and out of the band. Uh, Josh Colazzo, the drummer, Orfeo, the percussion player. Those were staples since the beginning. Now, one of them is like a pretty big artist, a painter. Well, you just went to his show. Christian. Christian. Christian's painting. He's like a sellout show. His paintings are incredible. He's very, very talented. But what's weird about this moment is like everyone's kind of a freestanding G, which doesn't yeah. happen. There's no day players here, really, right? Everyone's yeah. a brand and a unit, and then somehow they all work in sharp. That's a lot of phenomena. Yeah, and we're 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 mobilizing now to play these shows. There's there it's the ten year anniversary of that first album. Okay. Then we remastered it, and it's going to be re released on August 9th, and they're going to play a show at the Greek um, on August 9th. That's going to be awesome. Which will be an amazing kind of celebration of the last kind of ten years. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, we've been doing other things. People in the band have been doing other things. Alex has a solo project that he's starting to roll out. And really Alex is the linchpin of Edward Char. Like it, it can't, I remember getting myself in trouble one meeting by saying the only way a show can't happen technically is if Alex doesn't show up. Right. I mean, and it doesn't mean that people aren't equal in the thing, but there just can't be an Edward Sharp show without Alex. There could be one without Jade. There could be one without one of the band members because you can have someone come in for the day and play that instrument or whatever else, but you can't have one. Yeah. So I I just saw Jade for the first time in probably nine years or or maybe a little less at the Echo in the Canyons premiere singing. And I didn't recognize her because last time I saw her, I think she had a shaved head and she has beautiful one length hair now. And I was like, this girl's really beautiful. She sounds great. And then I put it together. Yeah, (laughs) that didn't end well. That, that was one of that those ending. That was one of the, that was a case where well, it was a girlfriend, wasn't it? Was she a girlfriend and a musician? And yeah, that's well, complicated. To, yeah, few different people she dated in the band. Okay, it was like managing three Fleetwood Macs, you know. And uh, what's the other band with Michelle Phillips dating both members? <laughs> what was that called? Uh, uh, Mamas and the Papas. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. There was a lot of that. It, right. was, it was intense. But um, how did you go from Mulholland to an organized traveling, organized recorded record that's going for, you know, how does Well, that in the beginning, happen? it was it, so Heath Ledger was going to be the partner in the label. We were going to start a label together. He was going to fund it. We were going to try and do a real independent. And mm-hmm. when, when, unfortunately, what happened with Heath, um, we, we went and did a record deal. We did a partnership with a, another label where we owned 50%. And Alex did a publishing deal, which enabled us to have some money to help support being on the road for the first time with 10 people. But it was like... That's expensive. Huh? Oh, man. It was it was a miracle that yeah. it got off the ground. But it had to go in a trajectory like, like that, like kind of straight up, because it couldn't, it couldn't happen normal life cycle of a band it couldn't happen on the second record or it had to happen on the first one mm-hmm. and luckily it did and, and it happened when i mean when i say that it happened it happened at a, at a level of like we could sustain no one got wealthy of course off that band mm-hmm. there's money that comes in from sure. it but when you're splitting the pie you know just a percentage it, of the pie to a percentage of people gets real yeah, real quick, right? Yeah. And and um but it wasn't about the no. money. And in fact, before any of the money started to come in, that was what the scene was forming around. That kind of like I think that that commerce made it more more people knew about it, but mm. the it's like the specialness started to kind of shrink a little bit as soon as it became where people, you know, where we had to talk about money and see about like what it all meant and how to just split it up and what's fair. Okay, we we entered into agreement when there was no money, right? In order to get to a place where there's money, now that there's money, do we still are we still beholden to that agree? Like, there's all this, and then know, there's expectation because that I mean that went profoundly commercial like it went well like to a place you can't imagine for an act like that i think like sure it hit the mainstream 
it hit the mainstream, but it also opened the doors for other bands to kind of really polish that mm-hmm. and then really do well yeah. with that. And then not have to split it with, you know, a lot <laughs> of other people. people. Yeah. So I, th- I think that Edward Sharp will always be more culturally important than financially important Absolutely. to any, anyone that's around it or in it. How many records have they done? Four. Four records. Yeah. And where are they now? What was the, when was the last one? The last one was put out about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And then they've been on hiatus while Alex has been working on this solo stuff. And they've all been doing It's his second solo things. record, right? This ne- Yeah, he put out a solo record called out The Alexander Record in 2011. And then this one is a double album, which will come out. Uh, the first three songs are out right now. There's really rad visuals and videos. I saw the skateboard video. I really liked it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, is um, that a music video or a teaser? I just yeah, saw it. Yeah, I'm back to our first beginning of the conversation. What was that? That was a video. <laughs> That's a cool. video. It, it is cool. And there's a lot of really good content. But they're going to play some shows. They're playing a couple festivals, Edward Sharp and... Uh, I don't know what the future holds. The thing with Alex is that you can't plan too far in advance no. with him. So. He kind of left Robot at the height of Robot, didn't he? Or was no, it falling? Robot, Robot fell off because it it was um, it was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And Virgin, who had signed them, didn't really know what to do with it. They were cool in New York and L.A. and maybe mm-hmm. Chicago, but everywhere else was really hard to kind of connect. But Alex has always been at the forefront of a scene starting. So... I'm a robot was before like the rapture and the, you know, uh, LCD sound system and all of this kind of electric hot chip and all this stuff that kind of like took that vibe and mass marketed. Yeah. And would basically open the door and made it more accessible, I guess. Mm -hmm. But that's another super group. I mean, Alex, Justin Mendel Johnson, who plays with Beck, look up his credits. I mean, he's on, he's everywhere. Tim Anderson, Oliver Goldstein, like all these guys have very successful careers in the music business. Joey Warnaker, the drummer, one of the best drummers alive. Like the, that was a super group that mm-hmm. still is a super group. In fact, we have a, I'm a robot record that was never released called search and destroy, which we're going to re we're going to put it out there this, this And wait, summer. do you have a label or a management or how do you do it? We have both. We have a uh, label called Community Music, and then a, I have a management company called New Community Management. And, mm-hmm. and Community Music is essentially just a way, an outlet for us to be able to put things out with for our friends or for things that we're... Are you keeping the office I used to love going to? Yeah. Are you still there? How long yeah. have you been there? Since 2013. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I thought even longer. I love that space. That space has great energy. It does. I wish I owned it. I would really One fix day. it up in a way. They won't sell it, man. They, they, you know. Yeah. But it's, um, it is a special space. And I believe in special spaces. I think that like energy inside walls is to be. Yeah. It's hard to go to a place like you have a whole thing with all these different artists that do different things. And, and like you're in that space and everyone's just chilling. There's no weird uh, tension, which yeah. I don't know how that's even possible. Yeah. It's not really possible in other clicks that I go to. There's always like someone's more powerful, someone's doing better. It just seems like everyone's hanging there. <laughs> I try to That says a lot about you, man. It's a reflection of you and how you've done business in a sense. I don't believe in in the more powerful thing. I mean, it's like 
we're all doing stuff. We're all, right. we're all like the Kings and Queens of our own castles. And we need to like, think of life in those terms. We have to like the, the weird power thing. I've never, I grew up here and I, and I was around famous people early on and people from all different colors and religions. And I remember noticing two guys kissing when I was like seven and I was like, and no, none of that stuff ever phased me. I was just like, Oh, it's just the world. It just made me think like the world is huge. Right. And so that's the thing about power to me, which is so weird is that most of it is an illusion. You sure. know, most of it has to do yeah. with like this perceived, like that person's life is, must be way better than mine or they can do things that I can't. And I mean, I, listen, I'm white, uh, male, straight. I, some would say that I've had it really easy mm-hmm. and I don't, I would agree, but my perspective is I don't try to hold that over, or how do I say this? The, the way that I view interaction with other people is that we're all we're all the same we're all going through the same things internally in some way or another it's all relative Mm -hmm. and ultimately that's what that's the power that i hold within myself it's i treat everyone the same whether you're jay-z or whoever like someone that wants you to help them along or an intern or you know like it's all the same yeah because i've also seen people become be interns that became really powerful yeah i mean half of my old crew is like running companies and technology things and you know i've even gone back to hiring me to do like you know ea sports campaigns for video games that aren't out yet you're like wait where did you oh you used to work with me it's crazy world so like so like if you if you ever had a power trip on one of those people like i mean i just learned early on that you can't you got to treat others the way that you want to be treated and i guess like that's what religion is to me like i don't need any further explanation like that's cool i'm down to follow the set of rules and live my life in the way of what I guess is is referred to as the golden rule, which is you just treat others the way that you want yeah. to be treated. Did you get any of it from your peers? Because I was young in the business and I had all these guys that were like that 18th century shaming, yelling, throwing cameras at me. I feel like that that you and I are very like-minded this way. So I think I took a little bit of that from watching the generation before me because they were like really abusive towards me and others. Well, it was part of a, like, it was like a, it was like a, uh, something in the rule book that they had to act like this abrasive style of anxiety to get things done. And I was like, I never want to be him right, or her. No, ever. no, I have the same thing. I, yeah. I don't pick up bad habits. I kind of like clock them and be like, yeah. that's not what I want to do. Yeah. Like I never, I, um, I even skated through, I mean, I probably got to be one of the only club promoters of all time. That's never done cocaine, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and it was because <laughs> the people around me when it was interesting to me that we're doing it were so annoying to totally. me that I yeah. was like, I can't. And it's almost comical when you watch temper tantrums or drug problems. Sometimes it's comical. Yeah. Like, Look at him. He's a gimmick. Yeah. And then my, you know, my mom smoked cigarettes, so I didn't smoke cigarettes. And like, there's just certain things that like, I was like, uh, I don't think that I need like rather than, 
using that as like an excuse to do those things mm-hmm. and saying like, and I'm not, I don't know where that comes from, but I know, I know this. I know that when I was growing up, I used to hang or used to always want to hang with my cousins and their friends that were all about eight to 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And that was the cool to me, like they were the coolest. And I, w- I would do anything to go hang out with them for like 10 minutes or be able to kick it for a couple hours or whatever. Else. And one of my cousin's friends, especially was always so cool to me. He kind of took me under his wing. He was the coolest one, the whole bunch. He always made me feel like I could come along and it was all good and didn't really make me feel small. And I would say that that had the most profound That was impact. your case study, so to speak. Yeah, just that just made me feel, he made me feel good. He made me feel like I didn't have to like treat my younger brother, you know, who's younger than me, less than me. Mm-hmm. Because I was being shown an example of like how, what it made me feel like to be treated as just like appreciated that I was there or like, Oh yeah, Brian's here. It's cool. Rather than like, there's a classic story, Adam, DJ alphabet, Adam 12, whatever you want to call him. So they are all part of the same crew. Mm -hmm. So they went to Taft and then I don't know if Adam went to Taft, but they used to throw a party called Carlos and Charlie's or or at Carlos and Charlie or something. Um, uh, Effects was their party back in the day. And I, hopped into the trunk of the car once in Woodland Hills and ended up, they were pre-partying at the house, at my mm-hmm. cousin's house. I hopped in the trunk because I wanted to go. He snuck. They showed up at the thing. And I'm like, bang, yeah, yeah. And they're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's then, how you get to Hollywood. All, yeah, and then they were all like, someone's got to take them back. And I was like, no. And I remember Adam was there and he was just like, I can't believe that you hidden the trunk That's to get to, and I was like well why don't we just hide me in someone I'll just go through the back door now that I'm here yeah you know but like to me that's I wanted to be I I really the, the irony is that I really really wanted to be a part of the scene when I was younger and yeah. now <laughs> it's I feel so differently sure. about it that's why that's why like having a space like no name was so great because I was able to have like a spot where I could congregate and people would be coming in and out, but I didn't have to be like, I didn't really ever use that as like, I'm the owner. Yeah. I used it as like, this is a cool place where people are coming through to hang and I get to be like right in the middle of that Mm -hmm. and engage with whoever I wanted to in there without having some weird, awkward introduction. So it was, it was a, it served a purpose for a while that I think is important to I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I think Lions, the no name yeah. is important to the culture. I think that that those nights and that time and that era will be important to the legacy of this town. Yeah, moving forward. I remember uh, Alex back to Alex bringing his Grammy in a uh, brown paper lunch bag, and I got to hold his. Uh, Grammy for winning and took a photo of it. It's pretty amazing. I have a great photo of that. Oh man, that's such a night. There's a million nights. Who played in it? Who played at that place? And it was Largo before, right? It was Largo so the before. The whole world played which, there before. 
that was the, the thing energy. that was so yeah. So it was Largo before they moved to the Cornet Theater. Mm-hmm. Someone had the lease, and mm-hmm. they were going to try and turn it into like a sports bar kind of Ouch. vibe. And the stars aligned to let me riff with Sean Parker one day to uh, create this space in the way that we wanted to do it and um, not let it become something that didn't have creative energy still flowing through there, which is what we kind of carried on Mm -hmm. the tradition that Largo started. Because when I was first in the music business, that Largo and what was happening inside of Largo was the scene for me. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was really cool. You had musicians, actors, comedians, all hanging out, supporting each other. What's his name, the owner? Flanagan. Flanagan, yeah. So I was really excited to invite Flanagan in to No Name when I first opened. And uh, he wrote wrote me this email and he was like, you know, I'm really happy that you have this space. I'm really happy that you were the one who took it over. Mm -hmm. But I can't go there because it's like your wife is is just married the coolest dude and you're happy for your wife, but you don't want to hang with the dude. And I, and I totally understood what he was talking about, but I'm now sad that I never got to hang with him at least one night in the space, that space. Right. But he, to me, what he has done yeah. and continues to do at Largo is the most important, at least for me, that's the most important institution in Hollywood yeah. over the last 20 years. Absolutely. There's so many things that have come out of Flanagan and his movement. Yeah. How many acts did you put out in this era of time? And you manage or you produce sometimes or no, no producing? No producing. Uh-huh. No. I'm a, I'm a manager. We have a, a bunch of acts. You I have don't like even... 10 or more right now? No, not that many. We represent a, um, a roster of producers and songwriters, so it gets a little bit longer there. But we have about seven acts that we're looking over day to day. It's a lot of energy, yeah? Yeah. How yeah. do you do it? Just, I think that's how I remain single. Right? Well, you're putting all your love and your light into these different artists. Yeah, I've I've definitely sacrificed. It it's a I say this all the time. It's a it's a be careful what you wish for type of gig because because there's always something that you could be doing. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to channel that energy the right way, it could overtake you. Do you have a good team that's looking out a, for you? I have a great team that's looking out for the artists. We, we, um, no, I don't have like a team. I, I mean, I have a great business manager team that's like, they're not typical entertainment business managers mm-hmm. because they're more of like a, they're kind of like your parents, right. you know, kind of vibe. But yeah. I, I was with business managers 
that were way more business managery. Mm-hmm. And I, it, the way that business is conducted, especially on my behalf and for me, is so important for it to feel not so just transactional. Right. And so I got introduced to a friend's parents who represent like a lot of really high net worth individuals and look at me as like, they took me on as like basically like a charity case <laughs> or an like, experiment. <laughs> yeah. Like we like him. I, we, we, I like the way that they do business. They, they, you know, there's things that I help contribute to people in my life. And I don't want those people to ever be made to feel like they have to, deal with a business manager if that makes sense right you know what i'm saying like i i know what that's like and to me i just don't i don't want that transactional energy to be around me yeah it's hard to, i think it's, very it's hard to articulate this could be a part of the second no i get I come it come back at some point but, tell me uh, when music supervision enters your life when did you start doing that i just did it for olivia uh her What's her movie called? Booksmart. Booksmart, which is out now, or is, yeah. it, is it still going? Yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. Congratulations. When did that, how does that come about? That's one of my best friends for the last I remember her at, 15 at Community years. or No Name all the time. She was always yeah. there. Yeah, and we, she had directed a video for Edward Sharp uh, using just an iPhone on the last record, mm-hmm. and then she directed one for Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was really cool. And then she got a shot at directing or putting together this script and directing this movie, Booksmart. And her and I know each other so well that we are able to kind of like have a real dialogue about kind of, you know, the playlist that I was sending her and the vibes that she was looking for and the kind of energy and this and that, where mm. it to me also is a personal thing. I've, I've been asked since then, about doing it for other films because mm-hmm. people have really enjoyed Booksmart. And I, I'm not interested in building a career as a music supervisor. I will do it with people that I can have a real, where we can philosophize about Chemistry music. Yeah, rather than just like thinking of it as like- A job. They throw yeah, some songs for. Where like a random screening in Calabasas could like- change the you know we gotta replace these songs aren't trending well or whatever like i don't want to have any of that (laughs) unless unless i'm toe-to-toe with the director and we're going to stand up for what we want to have as a part of the musical um story of the film and and she's she can do anything Mm -hmm. you know this is just this is the start of like a long career i believe in making films and, and you wouldn't mind going them. back to supervising with her because you I'll, understand I'll do her. it with her yeah uh-huh. I'll do it with her but you're not out there looking for a supervising gig no you don't have any time for it no tell no. me about the new spot you have a pizza place in in the arts district downtown it's called Lupetti okay um, and I have yet to come which I'm bad I have to get down man, there to get would, in my helicopter and get down there you would really it's going to be worth it for you to go into In Sheep's Clothing, which is the vinyl bar that's connected to it. Okay. And you should go there during the day, have coffee, tea, check the vibe. I'm coming. I can only imagine. This is where you've been putting your energy for about a year or a little yeah. longer? Yeah, a little little longer. And How often are you going down? I go down there a few times a week. Yeah? Yeah. I can't wait it's, to see it's this. It's special. 
It's is a really it special spot. The, the pizza different or is there anything to the pizza's it? Pizza's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Traditional? It's like New York, like slices. Mm-hmm. It's not like the artisan kind of like. Yeah, they can over design in LA. They like to get their hands in things and start right. doing things. You're like, just leave it alone. Yeah. Joe's or. <laughs> I think I think it's good. I think it's good. We'll see. You know, the restaurant business is just another thing that I was just like. I can't figure it out. I woke up one day and was just like, how did I, how am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Los (laughs) Angeles. And you got like, when you were on Fairfax, it wasn't the world mecca it is. You were before Supreme or no, were you we after? Were right, we right were after, right, similar? Right after. And then all of a sudden, Animal, John and Vinny's, Tyler the Creator, well, uh, Animal Cooks was and there. Castles. Animal was there before us. John and Vinny's came after. Was Damiano all- still there right when you got there or was it an empty building? No, it was an empty building. Okay. But Damiano's, man. I wow. lived my life there, you know? Me too. Yeah. From, from about... Two o'clock to three a.m. So many memories. I was at Damiano's yeah. four times a and week, and they were the only cats that would bring a pizza to Malibu because you couldn't order pizza in Malibu, and you could call them up and they would come to like Point Doom if you had the dough. Like, I saw we'll I saw one of the greatest things ever there, what which was I was walking up the street. And, you know, they used to have these pizzas that were just stacked, mm-hmm. you know, like when you walked in, you, there was all these pizzas that were stacked. They were because people would be coming and getting slices. Oh, it was active. And so I'm walking down the street towards Damiano's with a friend of mine. Someone had gone in, snagged a whole pizza and was running down the street and in the, like came out, almost ran into us. My friend grabs one of the slices it just happened like this. Then the person comes out and is chasing the dude down the street. And I can't explain how amazing it was. It should have been, it's like in a film. Like imagine this dude runs out with a whole pizza and without even trying, my buddy just grabbed one slice. He knew <laughs> that he had stolen a pizza, a whole pizza. He got a slice And he just passing. grabbed one slice as he ran by. And we shared that piece of pizza and then didn't even go into Damiano's. We were like, oh, that was, we shouldn't even buy one tonight. It was, I'll never forget it. It was one of the best, but (laughs) that place was, um, it was a staple. Yeah. If you went there, what was it it open till four? It was open real late. Yeah. But I remember going there during the day once and it was just not the vibe. No, it's like dark (laughs) and sad. It looked like an old Rockford Files episode or something. It smelled weird. It was definitely wouldn't have an A. Yeah. No, no. As <laughs> soon yeah, as Fair- the rating system came out, that's when Damiano's was like, Game we gotta, over. yeah, we're out of here. Yeah. But Fairfax really came up after you were in there. It just became this whole world, right? It just yeah. builds and builds and builds. Yeah. I can't it- ever figure these things out, nor how you would run a restaurant in today's day and age. Because everyone's so fickle. They're like, we're on to here. I think DM is ruining the world. Everyone DMs are somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, probably. <laughs> this ain't happening. We're over here now. I know. <laughs> I, I agree. DMs and likes and My thumbs ups. My buddy's been doing Wally's, uh, the wine and cheese shop, and it's like Coachella every night of the week. And I'm like, how is it? He goes, I have no idea. And it's like Star Wars bar. There's no solid thing. There's a the whole world in there. It's just like Star Wars. But where is that? Wally's is in Beverly Hills. No, in where's Santa Star Monica. Wars bar? I call it that because of the cast of characters. Oh, right, right, you right, have right. A little bit of everything. It's like salt and all kinds of stuff. No, but I stuff. think that someone recreated the Star Wars bar. Oh, that's funny. I think I've just been seeing something, or maybe there's a Star Wars themed <laughs> land or something. I, I use it know. as a reference just because of the nuts in there. It's just so weird. There's no no vibe. It's just like money and like 
yeah. whatever's going to happen that night. No, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a guy. Last night I went there to meet him, and there was a guy outside with a 7 Series Beamer wafting paint like Jackson Pollock, and everyone's just watching this. And it's oil-based paint, and it's going all over Beverly Hills, all over things around storefronts. And soon enough, like the cops come up and like, what are you doing? And then they arrest him. But it's his car. He's doing it to his own car. You've probably seen this car in LA. You can't miss it. It looks like some Jasper John's electric paint job. And <laughs> another night at Star Wars. <laughs> that's crazy. That's great. I mean So wow. tell me about now. What do you what's the focus for the uh rest of the year? Do you have anything that you're pushing or you're getting these shows ready? You're getting for the, the shows great- ready. We got Alex's music that's rolling out, which is really have exciting. you dropped the single or it comes in there's August? Three, there's three songs that are out right now. Okay. The single right now that we're really put I mean, there's two songs that are we're kind of pushing. They're super fresh. We're gonna have there's twenty plus songs. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be rolling that out between now and the end of the year. That's a pretty big focus, right? Yeah. Especially navigating last time you released Alex in 2019. What are like differences that you're seeing in this overly loud <laughs> landscape of how do you market anything today? You know? Yeah. You have to, you, well, the thing is that you can't, you can't think of it as like when you release something and you post it on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram that everyone's going to know about it. So you have to kind of like have this sustained, you know, drop. Yeah. Just like water dripping, getting people to repost it and share it and check this out and look, cause you, the sparks come kind of like sporadically. They don't come as like this one big spark Mm -hmm. unless you're like Drake or whatever. So even those guys are just doing multi-million dollar versions of please post this. It's no one's no one's safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it it, it reaches that they have this way bigger kind of like pool to kind of sure. uh, get the get the pavement yeah. pounding to start. But they um yeah, so so we're just kind of like, you know, Alex likes to use this term kung fu in the mud. That's what it feels like sometimes. You're just kind of like <laughs> hand-to-hand combat, like trying to get people to look and listen and check kung out. Kung fu in the mud is great. Yeah, he uses it. I, I <laughs> take that from him. Uh, he has a, a film that mm-hmm. he made that's really special. We're hoping that it uh, gets accepted to Telluride Film Festival, and we'll kind of launch that there. Uh, Perfume Genius. Uh, oh, wow. I wanted to talk about that. I just saw the, I haven't gone to Coachella since I think 16 or something. I can't, I can't yeah. seem to get back there unless you guys go headline it or something, which is pretty far away, right? With Ariana Grande being the, the head of the festival. Yeah. I think I have a feeling they're going to go back and retract and rethink this. But I could be romantic. No, or is it just going to keep kid, going till no, the McDonald's the arches are on yeah, stage? Yeah, yeah. There's going to be an M behind them. <laughs> or Target the kid, ad to come out in. The kids don't really care. Sure. About, you know, and, and they want to go. The biggest kind of crowds are all to like music that, you know, it's like, it's not that I don't want to. I guess I'm going to sound uncool by saying that I'm not super familiar with the marshmallows of the world or the, you know, I don't even know what else there is except for like, it's like Kardashian as a group. Right. Like it's really kind of flashy, like glossy, big bass, big, like Mm -hmm. that music seems to be more of party atmosphere, which is what Coachella is thought of rather than a music festival to kind of see 
uh, bands play. And, and Paul understands that and he knows who he's catering to. And Mm -hmm. I don't blame him. I mean, Coachella turned into that. He has a business. Yeah. And by the way, the most people who were going to Coachella the entire time weren't going for the music. They were going for the scene. A girl or a boy or like, you know, get into a click It's a place where the whole world comes for the weekend, you know? That's why I think it's always funny when people are hating on the lineup whenever it gets released, because it's like, that's not, it's not about that. It's like, that's the sideshow of the experience and the Coachella experience can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, I've gone every year except for one year Uh and- What year did you ditch? I I don't even remember. It was like five or six (laughs) years ago. So you went to the last one? Yeah. we, We, I went as just a fan- uh-huh. and cruised around. I went to the last one on the second weekend for one day. Uh-huh. I had to, Aphex Twin is like my favorite thing. So okay. I, I had to set? go. It was incredible. Oh, good. It was absolutely incredible. Mind-blowing. It was worth every second of dealing with in and out of there. But by the way, it's the, the plug is going on the second weekend. If you really just want to go and check out some music and have some good food and have a couple drinks and see some of the art installations mm-hmm. and skip all of the, you know, shenanigans second weekend. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the way. So I, I enjoy it for what it is, but by the way, it's a choose your own adventure experience. Right. And so if you're going to have a bad time at Coachella, mm-hmm. you kind of made right. that happen. Yeah. You were with, you can you go went watch with the like wrong people. The talking heads. You don't have to go to that evening, which I thought was a great show. And back to your artist, Perfume Genius, I turned on the streaming and mind blown first weekend of his antics and his performance. What's his name? Mike. Mike is amazing. He's just a, he's got something very special that I'm older and jaded and not very interested in things. And it was nice to feel that I haven't felt that way. Like I always use deer hunter as a reference. Someone made me stay through a deer hunter set and I was like kicking, screaming, trying to get to a dinner plan. And I was sucked into this kid and same with this artist, Mike, his choices and his vocal I like it more than the produced record, to be honest. There was this freedom to it, which I like can say that about the Beatles. Mm. You know, I always like an, a, a little bit more, what do you guys call it in, in professional terms? It's not negative space, but it's the breath or the the distance between. So yeah. it's not so, I always, people always go, you don't want to hear this yet. It's still rough, but like real bigger producers always let me listen to stuff because I really like it then. Yeah. And I really don't like when they clean up or when they, yeah. you know, get a click track out and make it work. Yeah. I'm like, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, that's why I think you've always resonated with Alex because Alex is like really against yeah. kind of the perfectness of it's the absence and it's like the distance in space it's the uh what do they call it? it's not negative space it's called something I've heard I understand great what producers you're saying. call it where it's the gaps and uh well he's where- doing some really cool stuff he's just recorded a whole album worth of material for a choreographed dance uh performance that he's going to be in that's going to happen in seattle paris i think uh new york minnesota and boston over the course of between now and the end of the year and that's really special because i didn't know what it was going to sound like he got commissioned to do to just do the music at first and then he's now going to be a part of the show and i didn't know what the music was going to sound like and when i heard it i was just like wow this is 
this is actually going to be something because it's like perfume genius without any format of the songs. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus, outro, Mm -hmm. bridge, outro, whatever. It's like soundscapes where he's singing and creating like he's got one hell of a voice yeah and so then yesterday so he finished that the the recording of that and then yesterday he went in for the first day recording of the new proper perfume genius record and so um how'd you find what's his full name mike mike hadreas mike hadreas where did you guys come together or hadreas um well the thing is is that i i was a fan of his from the first album, and not a lot of people knew about him. Was it called Perfume Genius? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he had this song called Learning um, that is incredible and raw and all the things that you're talking about. Mm. If you're really into him and you're really into what you just said, like, listen to that song, I'll send it to you. But that was my first introduction. Then I was a fan and been going along this journey as a fan of his. And I remember saying a couple times, like, man, I really wish that I worked with him. And we managed this artist, uh, musician called Blake Mills, who's one of the most talented songwriter, guitarist that, you know, that's on this planet. And Blake got asked to produce the last Perfume Genius record. And during the course of the rollout of the Perfume Genius record, Mike was first with these managers that are based out of London and he entered into a really bad deal. One of those deals that you hear about in the music industry, but Mm -hmm. you can't believe still exists where they own 50% of everything. And just, they're his business management as well. And all of this, (laughs) there's no, yeah, there's no separation of (laughs) church and state. And he, he got free from them and then was with this really great manager named Dawn. And she also managed the national. And during the time when she was working with perfume genius, the national had left her and had the tour manager become their manager. Got it. And I think, and I don't want to put, you know, feelings out there for, but like, I think that it was such a bad breakup that it really turned Dawn off to the music business. And Mm -hmm. she actually exited the music business. Mm -hmm. When we were in kind of prime position, at least to know that that was happening. Right. And so we were a part of, I got to go, I flew out to New York and I met, Perfume Genius had three shows in New York in a row, two at uh, Bowery Ballroom, two nights in a row, and then the third at Williamsburg Music Hall. Mm -hmm. And I got to take Mike and his partner, Alan, uh, his partner in life and his partner in the band to dinner. And I think that, actually, I've never asked him why he went, he picked me. But I think it had to do with me knowing, I think he got a sense that I had been following as a fan since day one. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because he was starting to become right. a really hot artist or anything yeah. like that. I And I really care about him like I do with all my clients. I think he's like, going to be around. It's another one of those groups you found yeah. that's a real, it's not some temporary moment. And he's become, he and Alan have become really close friends with Julie too, which has made that's me great. feel feel great as well my sister but yeah so there's a lot of perfume genius coming out we signed a brand new band called more which it's hard to not oversell but like it's really special 
It's two guys and no one knows about them. There's not anything that exists online right now. I got to come over to the management and you listen gotta to come, some You got to have stuff. a proper listening session. Yeah. Leah Isis has a new record. She's incredible. We're rolling stuff out with her. She took some years off to have a family and a child. And now she's made a new record and it's phenomenal. And she's getting out there and playing shows. Very excited about what's happening with her. Dave Sardi, who's a producer, legendaries, mixed and produced some of the greatest records. His first job ever was engineering Blood Sugar Sex Magic and then went on and wow. mixed part of the first Rage Against the Machine record and all sorts of stuff. We represent him as a an artist slash producer slash composer. And he has an artist project coming out. He's also making the last Who record that will ever come out. Oh my God. And it's actually incredible. It actually sounds like a an old school who record <laughs> he's making a new hives record as well. Blake Mills has two solo records coming out and is writing music for a new TV show. And then bad sons who are on tour. They have a new record that just got released a few months ago. They just finished up a headline tour. They're going back out in the fall. Yes. Yeah, You're busy, man. Full slate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come down. I don't want to keep you all day. We have to do part two after your world tours. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's listen I'm to gonna, some music together. Yeah, I'm sure. going to come down and we'll listen to music. And thank you for coming out. I know this is on another side of the world for you. Well, actually, you go no, over no, here, not, right? It's not that bad. Yeah. Not you have a new bad. house. I have a new house in, in Sherman Oaks, which you, that's where you should come and hang. I will. That's, because I want to see your sister also. That's your vibe. Okay. Trust me. I believe I you. I found a one of one. Like <laughs> these people that lived in it before me lived in it, a husband and wife for 50 years and they worked on this house themselves, mm -hmm. not with anyone else mm -hmm. the entire time. Yeah. And it's really artisan. Like you, it's yeah. your vibe. One of my closest friends, Paul Anderson, he lives on up Van Alden and has one of the magic houses that was a horse ranch that's yeah. converted into his world. So yeah. I get it. He's like, I'm like, who would live out here? I'm like, someone that doesn't need to go in for a meeting. <laughs> you can come and meet the famous cat too, yeah, Fluffle Stillskin. Dude, thanks for coming. I'm excited to hear some of this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our episode. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to look up Brian and some of the artists that we speak of in the podcast, they're at New Community Management, which you can have fun going down the rabbit hole of all kinds of artists and songwriters. I'd like to thank Brooke Jenkins for her wonderful contribution and her engineer work on this episode. Without her, I would be saying, um, um, quite a bit. So I appreciate her making me sound like, you know, I went to school. I'd like to reach out and thank the patrons. Without you again, you know, none of this would be possible. We appreciate everything you do. If you haven't rated or reviewed it, we need some because that matters at Apple. We need ratings and reviews. So if you get time, give us 50 stars and say it's the best podcast you ever heard in your whole life. You can find us at patreon.com slash Patrick Hollick if you'd like to get involved in our little world community. And um, thank you for listening. Joe
sunshine, realize I 